Welcome everyone to Marketing Management and Money. We are excited to be doing an interview with Carl Swanepoel today. Carl is the CEO and founder of Revel Lancer Beta. It's a platform designed to empower independent professionals and freelancers by facilitating the skills exchange to build their service businesses. Carl has a strong background in artificial intelligence and robotics and studied at Aberystwyth University in Wales. Carl's entrepreneurial journey began at a young age when he encountered the challenge faced by freelancers. At the age of 15, he founded Buy Sell Jobs and sold it for a modest sum to a company before his 16th birthday, which made Carl one of the youngest ever brand ambassadors for The Business Show, Britain's largest business conference. He continued to serve as an ambassador and was given the opportunity to have a stall and deliver a keynote speech at the 2018 show held in the Excel Center in London. Today, Carl Swanepoel is leading an energetic and passionate team at Revelancer, determined to revolutionize the freelance industry and restore freedom to freelancers worldwide. So, Carl, thank you so much. Uh, We are grateful to have you on the show and uh, give us a little bit, uh, what, uh, what, what exactly is the mission and uh, vision behind Revelancer? Sure, well, thanks for having me. And essentially, my goal with Revelancer is to change the freelancing industry for the better, because I started as a freelancer myself. Um, like you said, I spotted issues with the industry that I wanted to do something about. And, um, well, you know, my, my eventual goal with Revelancer is to change the whole industry for the better. I mean, not a small goal. It's just <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, as a freelancer, are we talking all levels of freelancer? Are you, you staying with tech, you know, or do you just look at anything and say, yeah, if it's freelance, it fits. Well, um, certainly, you know, long long term, it'll be any kind of freelancing. Um, but for the time being, we focus specifically on remote. Uh, services. So it, can, it doesn't have to be just tech, it can be accounting um, or design or, or really anything, um, but as long as it can be done remotely. Awesome, awesome. So I want to jump back into uh, Revel Answer more in detail, but I got to find out, at age 15, you're already starting a company and selling it. And I mean, I know that uh, you sold it for a modest profit, but still, that's a huge accomplishment. So what was going through your mind at such a young age? And I assume that that really kind of springboarded you into where you are today. Can you give us a little bit of the, the story? You know, I mean, here you are, 15-year-old, kind of throwing something out there. It actually sticks. It actually works. What's going through your mind? What are you thinking? And, and how did that bring you to where you are today? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, I I started freelancing a little bit before that. Um, I realized that the existing freelancing platforms just weren't working right. And that wasn't where my my future was. Um, So I tried to do something about it. Um, So I started by sell jobs, you know, as a competing freelancing platform. Um, I started with, you know, really close to nothing. I had um, about 200 pounds, which I had saved up, you know, that's maybe $250 (laughs) um, saved up over a long time. Right. Um, you know, kind of plunge that all into the website, uh, getting it launched. And then once it was live, I, I didn't have any budget left. So I didn't have any kind of promotional budget. Um, so, you know, spent a lot of time kind of reaching out to freelancers myself on Twitter and in other places. 
um, kind of inviting them on, onto my platform. And it, it was, you know, like a, a bit of slow growth right at the beginning, but then it started snowballing because people were telling other freelancers about the platform. Um, and, and yes, I did sell it, but I didn't want to. Uh, the reason I sold it is basically because um, as the platform was picking up more and more traction and more people were buying things, mm-hmm. PayPal kept locking my account and asking me to, amongst other things, verify that I was 18 in order to unlock them. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I realized that wasn't sustainable. Um, and, uh, you know, in order to have the best outcome for the freelancers, I, I had to end up selling the platform. Okay. Okay. So you decided to sell instead of like, you know, find a a big brother or someone that uh, was 18 and say, Hey, can you just, you know, start on, I I guess that's a lot of company to give over for just the uh, fact of them being a little bit older to unlock an account. So. Oh, absolutely. I I mean, um, I did try my parents. I, I asked them if I could just have a PayPal account in their name to use this platform, but they, are quite risk averse. They said they didn't want to lose the house. Uh, so that was a, a dead end, unfortunately. Wow. How funny is that? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. After you sold, what was going through your mind? Because I mean, here you are, uh, you were 16 at the, at this point, right? Okay. So you're 16. You've just successfully sold uh, a business, which is a big accomplishment because, you know, a lot of people struggle to, you know, sell, uh, you know, sell their business. And so you've successfully sold a business, but you still have this challenge of, hey, you're only 16. What's going through your mind? What, what were kind of some of the next steps? Uh, you know, what did you do for the next several years while, while I guess you were waiting to get a little older? Yeah, well, I, I kept um, working on different businesses. At, at that point, I started working with an entrepreneur based in Germany um, who had a very large social media marketing company. And I was kind of working with him. Um, I, I worked with a lot of different clients. I then started a web and marketing agency when I was 18 and, and got an office on my local high street with that. Um, and that's what I kind of exhibited at the business show as, as well. Um, and then I went to university and then halfway through my final year, I thought, well, I'm, I'm older than 18 now. Um, these freelancing <laughs> platforms are still doing these horrendous things that they've always done and never change. Um, so now I'll, I'll have a go again at changing it for the better. And that's when I started Ravalonsa. Wonderful. Okay. So let, let, let's dive into this a little bit. You keep talking about these, uh, these freelance platforms and how, you know, they're so frustrating. And I can tell you from my experience. So, uh, my son, he is 17, not quite that 18 magical, you know, magical number. He's 17 years old and, uh, he does 3d design, you know, CAD design. And, uh, and so he actually works for a company right now and does 3D design for them, but he is interested in, in freelancing. And so uh, we had this experience, and this is prior to me ever, you know, ever meeting with you. We had this experience where he was trying to get into that freelance market, and he had this problem of finding a good platform and having, uh, you know, having a, a nice uh, avenue to get into it. Uh, his skill set in the 3D design space is, you know, it, it, it's a great skill set, and uh, you know, so he doesn't have a a problem of of getting the designs completed. He has a problem of of connecting with, you know, with the end users. So, uh, you know, that's a little bit of my personal experience. I I'd like to hear from you. You know, what are some of the frustrations that you saw in the freelance world? Because there's so many. I mean, thousands, if not millions, of freelancers out there who are you know they're trying to 
get out there. They're trying to, you know, have a space that works for them where they can share their skills, uh, make a decent, you know, profit at it. Uh, what what exactly were the problems that you saw and what are some of the problems that you were able to solve with Revelancer? Sure. Um, and I mean, um, you know, really at the face of it, it can be boiled down to two main things. And the first thing is that um, existing platforms rely on commission fees as their business model. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when we think about commission fees in most industries, we're thinking, and it depends what it is, obviously, but... Sure. Um, maybe like sub 5% in a lot of industries, so commission, maybe 10%. But in the freelancing uh, platforms industry, it's quite common to have 25% commission, which is just (laughs) an obscene amount. And then the problem is, and this, you know, links to the second problem, is that if you rely on charging an obscene commission fee to make money, uh, well, people will try and avoid that commission fee, surely. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means you have to really police how people communicate and you have to stop people from exchanging email addresses, phone numbers. You can't let people video call. You know, you really have to police how they communicate. So then you really disrupt their workflow and make it just an absolute pain to actually make meaning, meaningful connections on these platforms. Um, so we solve those, prob- those two problems in a very simple way. Uh, we simply do not charge commission fees and therefore we do not need to police people's communication and we allow them to video call and, and do everything else as well. Wow. Okay. Uh, I mean, simple, simple and straightforward. Like I love it. So uh, here's another thing that I'm curious about. I see that a lot of these freelance platforms, they leverage the currency exchange to make sense. And so what they'll do is they'll go, you know, so, I mean, I'm based here in the United States and, you know, the, the U.S. dollar is definitely a, a major currency in the world. And if I ever look at a freelancer, they're coming from countries that have very minor currencies. And because of the currency exchange, those people can then, you know, like their their cost of living relative to a U.S. dollar is much lower and so they can they can make money but i always and this is just me in the back of my mind i always feel like it's kind of limiting the number of creative artists and i I look at it and i'm just like okay so do i have to be geographically located in a certain uh country in order to be a successful freelancer and so i'm just i'm just curious could you talk to to that and uh you know how 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 does uh rebel answer address the the geographical locations and you know is is that is that still something you struggle with Sure. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a very good point. And if you are based in a place with low cost of living, then of course you can charge less. And that could potentially be a problem for someone who's based in a place with a higher cost of living. But equally, you have a, a disadvantage too, because there's a huge advantage to being based in, you know, in, in the States, for example. There are many companies in the States that would much rather work with a freelancer based in the States. Sure, yeah. Um, than than a freelancer based in India, you know, for a few different reasons, maybe time zone, maybe cultural differences, maybe um, just just you know they they kind of want, want to work with somebody um, closer to them. Uh, so we we see that a lot too. So it's not just all kind of sun sunshine and rainbows for people who can you know have a lower cost of living. Um, but ultimately, I, th- I think um, the way to look at sort of pricing services isn't really looking at the freelancer. It's looking at what is the service worth to the company? 
right? Mm. So, you know, if someone is building your website and this website is going to increase your revenue by, you know, X amount, then it should be calculated based on that. Like how much value is this project actually bringing to you? Not where is this person based? Like, you, you know, you want something of good quality, but matter where someone is based, they can deliver good quality, but they should be paid what the project is kind of worth to the company, essentially. Um, so that's how, how we think about it. And we um, have a skills exchange system between freelancers where we actually kind of help people calculate uh, the, the pricing levels of certain services, you know, like what um, is fair based on, on the data that, that we have rather than like, you know, uh, where are you based? What are your monthly mm-hmm. bills and, and that sort of thing? No, I think that's interesting. I, uh, you know, so I've studied entrepreneurship for, you know, well over a decade now. And I was reading this study once and it talked about, uh, and this is, this is a U.S. study and so other parts of the world for, you know, for this particular study. But it talked about the hotbeds of entrepreneurship and it was listing uh, cities like San Francisco, Boston, New York, Austin, uh, and all of these cities have a very high cost of living. And it was really kind of interesting because I would have thought that entrepreneurship would have, um, you know, gravitated to places that have lower cost of livings to save on the labor. And it turns out that labor is actually not a driving force in the success of entrepreneurship. And, you know, to your point of looking at the value of the services uh, was really what determined the, uh, you know, the, the success that, uh, that a company, you know, company would have. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I want to, uh, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about a, a hot topic in the creative space. And that is AI. So you have, uh, you have a strong background in AI and you have some expertise. And so I'd really like to hear from you. Uh, I've been following, uh, some other, you know, other, uh, podcasters, influencers that are talking about AI and what that's going to do to the creative space, because we're entering into a realm where, you know, AI is becoming capable of doing what creators are doing. And there's argument back and forth of, well, is that really creating something because all they're doing is they're just taking the existing information and, you know, kind of like repurposing it versus actually creating something. Uh, But then there's definitely a cost advantage of, you know, having some sort of, you know, machine or technology doing it as opposed to hiring a person. Can you just let's start by maybe laying the foundation of of what what AI means for the future of freelancers and creatives. And and then maybe we'll get into some of the specific situations that you see uh, and, and kind of share your thoughts or opinions as, as where, you know, where this might go, what are the, what are the opportunities and, uh, you know, challenges that, that are going to be faced specifically for freelancers, creatives, uh, and people in this space. Sure. Well, first of all, I think that um, AI, you know, a, a lot, lot of different um, AI projects actually function as great tools for freelancers. Um, so, you know, uh, for example, so you can use something like ChatGPT to help you write an article quicker um, to help you kind of proofread things or reword things in, in a way that sounds better. 
But that doesn't mean that ChatGPT is in any way, shape or form capable of replacing a, a human being. And the reason I say that is because um, ChatGPT is a very advanced um, predictive text algorithm that's basically, you know, that's trained on, on 5 million or so web pages. Right. So it's like on, 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 your, on your phone when it suggests what word you should type next, you know, that's exactly kind of what ChatGPT fundamentally is. It's just had a lot more training data. Um, and the thing is, it's very good at putting words in a certain order that make sense, you know, and are, are kind of cohesive. But the problem is, is that ChatGPT doesn't understand what it is saying. So, you know, and there are so many examples of this. I mean, you've probably yourself seen examples like this in your use of it, but some extreme examples include where it did a specialist doctor's exam and um, completely made up a condition uh, to diagnose the patient with, just oh, made, made wow. it up. Um, another example is just within the last few weeks, there was a, a court case in, in the US um, where the plaintiff's lawyers used ChatGPT to um, you know, gen generate that kind of research that they submitted to the judge. And there were a bunch of completely fabricated um, legal cases in there with favorable outcomes for their argument. So, and it's not, you know, it's obviously not like something malicious. I mean, you know, obviously the lawyers, that's ridiculous that they're not checking their own work mm -hmm. there. Um, but the, like ChatGPT isn't being malicious and making things up. It doesn't know. It's not sentient. It's just thinking like, what are words that will like look good based on the 5 million web pages I already read, you know, like in what order. Right. Um, so it's a useful tool sometimes, but, you know, it's, it's a tool for a professional in an area to maybe make their work a little bit more efficient, or maybe it's something to stay away from if you're a lawyer, for example, mm -hmm. you know, so, it, it, but if you're a copywriter, then, hey, maybe it's useful. Um, so I think like a lot of the kind of the conversation about AI is, is overblown. Um, I think that it's useful in some ways. I think that it is, you know, ridiculous and a, a bit of a toy in, in other ways, Um and ultimately, I think that freelancers should adapt by finding ways, you know, if it's a, a, applicable, of kind of integrating um, AI into their workflow and then really taking advantage of, you know, being able to work more efficiently. Maybe now you can take more clients on because you've cut down the time it takes you to do X task by half or, you know, by 25% or whatever. Um, but if a company were to try and use ChatGPT instead of hiring a copyright, I don't think the, you know, I, th I think they will they'll get what they pay for. Put put it that way. That that's kind of interesting. As you were talking, the thought that came to my mind. So um, I actually speak French, uh, but clearly I'm not a native. And so when I speak, people are like, oh, you know, you have a charming accent. And sometimes they'll, you know, they'll laugh at some of the things that I'll say. It will make sense that, you know, like I can, I can communicate just fine, but you can tell that I'm not a native speaker because of some of the word choices that, that I'm selecting. And so as you were talking, I'm like, huh, yeah, uh, ChatGDP has a, uh, you know, has an accent, I guess. It's not, it's not a native, you know, a native speaker if you could use sort of the, uh, you know, the correlation there. And, uh, and I think that that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. But there's another issue that has been brought up, uh, and I'd love if you'd weigh in on this. And and I, I'm, I'm going to apologize up front. I'm putting you on the spot here, and I know that you are not a legal advisor. So this is by no means, I'm not asking you to be a legal advisor here, uh, but I really would just like your opinion. 
So <clears throat> there's a lot of issues with copyright. So you'll have you know, uh, an artist. And when I say artist, I'm not talking just in the term of someone who like maybe designs, but you can have artists in, in many, you know, I think that there are many professions where people consider themselves artistic as they create. And so you'll have these artists and they are feeling like their work is being stolen by artificial intelligence. And then it's being repurposed for someone else and it's created this whole shift in the way that we look at intellectual property rights. And, you know, how do I, you know, how do I protect myself? Because if I want something on the Internet and then all of a sudden, you know, AI is coming and grabbing that, but then they're changing it enough. You know, I mean, we see songs all the time that it's like, well, this is a different. It, it, we all know the song, you know, it's it's a remake of a, you know, an old classic but it's it's you know it's different and so so i i've seen where you're seeing growing law cases lawsuits where people are complaining that ai is uh, you know stealing their work but you can't really pinpoint it because like you said they're scouring 5 million websites so what what are your thoughts and again not from a legal advisory but just uh, just your opinion on some of you know what 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 do you see happening in the future with you know copyright uh do you think that artists are going to uh, not be as open with some of their work uh maybe it will you know like the internet is supposed to be very open and fluid uh you know free form is it going to close that down a little because people will stop putting some of their best work online uh, what 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 are some of your thoughts with this situation that's starting to come up yeah so um it's a really really interesting question and i think that uh, there are a lot of components to it so you know on, on the one hand is fair to see why why people are um, frustrated you know if you put a lot of time and effort into a certain creative work and it's now being um, scraped up by some classifier and then being used to generate an output that you know your work has kind of contributed to that's maybe different enough for a you know from a legal standpoint but still and that this output is now being sold to other people you know and you're getting nothing right um, it's it's frustrating but then on the other hand, people are doing that, you know, you know, new artists are inspired by other artists and will create work similar to that. And they wouldn't have created that their own work in the first place that way had they not been inspired by uh, certain other pieces of work. So, you know, there's that as well. Um, you know, I mean, ultimately, I think um, what it comes down to is no matter what approach you take, whether you think, whether you say like, no, this is bad, let's try and stop it, or this is fine, no matter what approach you take, I think the important thing is for there to be a level playing field, which means that, um, for example, let's say, and you know, this has been a discussion, a platform like Reddit might say that they don't like that, you know, these different AI classifiers and so on have been training on all of their user data. Um, now they want to charge companies to, to do that. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's an example of where the playing field isn't necessarily going to be level because then it's going to have a higher barrier of entry and now only like massive um, tech companies will be able to afford to pay to have the right to do this kind of thing and then it'll create a very unfair market environment. So I don't um, necessarily, you know, I am personally quite on the fence about it, but I think 
we should either pick it's allowed, it's fine, or we completely ban it. It's you know it, it shouldn't happen. It's it's it has to be one or the other. It can't be anything in between because that's going to create a very unfair environment. You know that's interesting. I'd never actually uh, thought about the equity behind you know using these technologies and 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 what the implications would be. And I guess this is uh, kind of similar to what happened. And I don't know exactly when, but I'm going to say maybe a decade ago when you started getting uh, these search engines. Uh, probably even more than a decade ago, but when search engines really started becoming powerful. And we can see today that, you know, search engine technology is really in the hands of just a very few handful of major tech companies. And the amount of influence and power that these tech companies have because they're determining where you end up online you know if if i if i put in a search and, and and youtube has been criticized for this quite a bit because it's difficult to get on youtube and really find an unbiased uh, level of information. Uh, you know, uh, we, we, we see this a lot in the political environment where if you've searched a whole bunch of stuff and, and you know, you're on the, the, the conservative side of the political spectrum, then everything that you see is going to support that. And then someone who's on the liberal side of the political spectrum, they're going to have all, you know, all of their information supporting them. And then it creates this, you know, the this conflict where people are like, well, I saw this and I, you know, and, and, and they feel like it's fact-based and to an extent it is, but in reality, it's, you know, it, 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 it's very, uh, you know, it's very skewed facts. It's very, you know, heavily weighted to one side or another. And so that's an interesting thing when you talk about the equity of, you know, allowing the, the small players versus the major tech uh, and then the compensation that would go with that. Huh. I sorry. I you know nor, normally when I'm on the show, I uh, I try and you know lead in with another question. You just got me thinking so much that I'm sort of stuck right here. <laughs> and I, uh, I I apologize for this this moment for me where I'm kind of thinking, huh? That's that's quite interesting. <laughs> I think you know you you raise a very similar a very interesting point though with uh, search engines. Um, I mean, one other thing that that search engines, especially Google, has been really criticized for doing is they will extract information from web pages to answer questions. So, you know, if you Google some, like a question, it'll sometimes come up with, oh, people also ask this. And there's like yeah. a drop down, and you click the drop down, and they'll tell you the answer. So grab the answer from some website, which you are now not visiting, and they're displaying the, the answer right there. Um, you know, and then maybe it's a good thing for the website because they're being featured in this and more people will click through it. But ultimately, most people aren't going to click through. They'll just read the answer that's being highlighted there and, and then go away. And I think actually considering that, I think it is less likely that this kind of thing is going to be banned. And I think it is more likely that, um, you know, sort of these uh, AIs uh, um, scraping and training on lots of public data, I think it's less likely to be banned. I think it's more likely to be com completely allowed and kind of encouraged. And also, I think, unfortunately, it's also somewhat likely that um, companies, you know, like large internet companies are going to try and regulate it themselves or at least, you know, like not regulate it necessarily, but try and skim some money off of it by um, charging other companies to kind of ingest that training data, which is going to lead to an, an uneven playing field uh, 
further advantaging these kind of big uh, tech monopolies. So, yeah, and that's my my unfortunately uh, my kind of grim prediction, but I feel is is the most likely. So. With with that, and, and unfortunately, I also agree with your grim prediction. I, uh, you know, I think that uh, big tech still holds the advantage, and it makes it challenging for entrepreneurs. So, I want to bring this into you specific. So, here you are. You are a, uh, you know, you're an entrepreneur. Obviously, you don't have the resources that Google has. Uh, how do you feel? Because, you know, with Rebel Lancer, you've been able to carve out a space. You've been able to be successful. How do you feel that you can come in and compete and, and take it from, I mean, I am asking you specifically, but I'd like to broaden the question a little bit and say, okay, so what can entrepreneurs do to compete in that unfair environment where, you know, the the big tech, the big dollars, uh, or big pounds, I guess. Uh, we'll we'll try and be international here, but uh, that's what you know has the advantage. So where where do you see the small entrepreneurs carving out a space? Um, what do you think their role is in helping to you know equalize uh, this you know level of information? And uh, yeah, just what what are your thoughts on that front? Sure. Well, I think that it's it's difficult, sure, but there are lots of things you can do. Like, you know, I'll give, give you an example. In my case, we can allow people to talk outside the platform. And for them, it's not a simple case of them copying us because, you know, we're a startup. We can experiment with different things. But a big um, company that is generating hundreds of millions of uh, dollars in revenue every single year and, you know, and is public and delivering a return to their shareholders cannot suddenly say, okay, we're going to cut out our revenue stream now and we're going to experiment <laughs> with something else. It just can't, cannot happen, you know, but freelancers obviously would prefer not to pay a quarter of their work, uh, you know, of, of their earnings to, to the platform they're on. Um, you know, they would obviously like to be able to communicate with their clients in different ways. Clients want to be able to video call with freelancers, especially post-pandemic with that kind of trend. So it's just an example where, you know, yes, we're a much smaller company. Yes, we don't have nearly as many resources, nor kind of, uh, you know, have we been around for very long, but we're growing very quickly. And these large platforms cannot really compete. They cannot realistically compete with us. But then herein lies the second, uh, you know, the, the kind of the problem there. So it is possible for entrepreneurs to do this, but oftentimes what will happen is a big company will then come along and say, hey, you know, you're doing something interesting. I'm going to buy you. Right. And then just consolidate the market. And we've seen that so much with, large tech companies that are very actively buying smaller companies that are sort of challenging them in, in some way. And then for the entrepreneur, that's great because they get a nice big payday. But ultimately, in the long term for the industry, you know, that's not great. But then equally, if you reject an offer like that, they might then just take the money they were going to give you to buy your company and put it into sort of creating some other spinoff that's going to drive you out of market because of their immense resources. So it's a very unfair um, playing field and yeah, it's not, not great. Well, and, and it's interesting. I mean, you're talking about acquisitions from large companies and you kind of looked at it from the perspective that, uh, you know, a company sees what, you know, a large company sees what a smaller company is doing and has interest in them. But there are other aspects that I think are worth pointing out. And you alluded to the competition aspect where, you know, if they if they decide that, 
that you're a big enough threat, then they just heap on the competition to the point that it smothers you. And they might not have a better offering, but they can, you know, they, they, they can just flood your market to the point that, you know, your profits become so, so difficult because the market is now flooded, you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll see that type of practice. Um, but you also, uh, one thing that, that didn't get mentioned that I think is worth mentioning is when you look at these acquisitions, Large companies fail to have a lot of creativity, and so they hit a certain point where all of their growth comes from acquisitions. You know, small companies have a huge advantage that they're more creative, they're more innovative, they're better problem solvers, they can move quickly, they're more agile. And I'm not saying that just because you're small that makes you more agile or makes you a better problem solver, but I'm saying that a small environment is better fertile ground for growing that type of business. And so these large companies, you know, if you look at, um, you know, acquisition history, versus uh, revenue of large companies it's crazy how that explodes at a certain point where they stop producing their own innovations and they start just acquiring other companies for innovations you know and so so yeah a very very interesting dynamic that uh, you know that, that that tends to happen um and and so so Jumping back to, uh, you know, and you, you did mention that, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, um, you know, if you're given these opportunities, it usually is an opportunity. Uh, the entrepreneur, you know, oftentimes will choose to sell. And I think that's a great thing. I, you know, I, I don't want to uh, criticize that in the slightest. If, you know, if someone uh, has an opportunity to be acquired and, uh, you know, and they're really given a solid offer, you know, they should congratulate themselves. Uh, but I do want to go back to uh, kind of this, this, this question in my mind. Uh, you as an entrepreneur, do you feel uh, any sort of responsibility to try and combat all of that? You know, do your little part to, you know, uh, to, to, to make the world a better place? Or do you look at it and say, no, my job is to just have a successful company, whatever, you know, whatever that success is for me. How do you, how do you look at that in kind of the, the big moral ethical dilemma uh, as an entrepreneur? Sure. Well, for me, um, I absolutely am primarily driven by changing the freelancing space for the better. Um, but I'm also just acknowledging that realistically, no matter how good my intentions, it might be that at some point a large company, you know, makes an offer to buy us. And then if we don't take it, they will dedicate a huge amount of resources to kind of driving us out of business. So, so at that point, you know, it's, it's not kind of, um, what, what am I driven by as much as just would, would I rather take a, a nice payment um, or would I rather kind of get driven out of out of the market? So, I mean, I'm not saying that would, wouldn't necessarily happen, but there are lots of instances where, where that kind of thing does happen, mm -hmm. um, where entrepreneurs who aren't necessarily driven primarily by money um, do sell simply because if they don't, um, well, then the other company is essentially going to get what they want for free. Right, right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, in, interesting. And I will point out uh, in my experience, and I've been able to connect with hundreds, if not thousands, of entrepreneurs at this point in my career. And uh, uh, 
very few entrepreneurs are primarily driven by money. Uh, you know, it's there. There's this thought that it's like, oh yeah, people just start businesses because they want to get rich. And I'm like, there are those out there, but it's actually a very small minority. Most entrepreneurs uh, do it because they want to, uh, you know, push change. Uh, they do it because they want to solve problems. They do it because they personally are driven for excellence. Uh, and then, you know, usually a little bit down the list, they're like, well, yeah, the money's good too, but, you know, that's, that's not a driving force that they have. And so, you know, when, when you're talking and saying, yeah, I, I want to change the freelance world, I want to make it better for freelancers, uh, you know, I, I can see that and I commend you for that. I think that's wonderful. So the, the, the final question uh, or uh, topic that, that I want to get into, and I feel like I, uh, I would do a disservice if we didn't uh, at least address this, and that is the freelancers themselves. So in uh, 2020, COVID shocked the world, but it really sparked this freelance community. And, you know, everyone who was a fence sitter all of a sudden found themselves stuck at home saying, well, why not? And so we saw this explosion of freelancers. Uh, I think we're getting to the point where, you know, I mean, if you look at like a uh, product lifecycle curve, uh, you know, we kind of are going through that shakeout where some people who were dabblers uh, have decided that there's like, yeah, maybe freelance wasn't, you know, wasn't for me or I'll keep it on the side. Uh, but there were a lot that really launched into, and, you know, this is now, now their career. Uh, you know, many of them are replacing the, uh, you know, the income from high paying jobs as a freelancer. Um, I, 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 I don't know that I'm going to try and pinpoint what, you know, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, but I would just like to hear your perspective. You know, I mean, you work intimately with freelancers. What's your perspective on the freelance environment? You know, what's it like? What would, what would you recommend to people who are deciding whether to get in or out of freelancing? Uh, you know, what are some of, the, some of the pitfalls that you're like, yeah, I, when, when I see this happen, I, I say, you know, you got to avoid that. So let, let's talk just a minute about that freelance environment. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think as with any kind of environment, um, there are always things that could be better. But ultimately, I think freelancing is, is a fantastic environment to be in. And frankly, the um, kind of results speak for themselves. Uh, so today, there are 1.56 billion freelancers in the world. That's today. That's nearly a third of the global workforce. <laughs> that's insane. Um, it is. And um, McKinsey, you know, very credible company, they predict um, that by 2027, more than half of the U.S. workforce will be freelancers. Yeah, can, can I interject with a clarifying really question? Uh, oh, absolutely. So are these freelancers that are solely freelancers or are they moonlighting? So are they still holding their job and freelancing or did they just cut all ties and they're just freelancing? I believe it's, it's predominantly freelancing. Okay. Um, so people who are pr predominantly kind of getting an income from freelancing, um, okay. which is, is absolutely crazy. But, you know, and, and then furthermore, Fiverr actually did their own little study um, where they were especially focusing on Gen Z and found that 71% of Gen Z want to go into freelancing as opposed to a traditional career. <laughs> wow. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's really, you know, some some really crazy numbers uh, that that really uh, speak for themselves. So I think it's a great environment to to go into. Absolutely. Um, I think there are things that could be better, and that's you know why I'm also trying to do something about that. Um, but ultimately, you know, if you want to get into freelancing, the best way to, to get started is to build your portfolio, um, you know, like start with doing some projects for yourself, um, you know, just some kind of projects to, to show off your skills, um, find some clients, maybe offer a discount or do something for free. And then from there, you know, kind of just get started by building up a client base, um, getting some great testimonials and, and getting your name out there. And I think that's a, you know, pretty, pretty um, solid way to get started. Ah, wonderful. Now I appreciate it. So thank you so much, Carl. Uh, this has been, uh, has been very insightful. You definitely got my wheels turning. Uh, I mean, even stopped me a couple of times in the middle of the show where I, uh, I just started thinking about some of the stuff that you said. So I, uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, if anyone wanted to uh, learn more about Revelancer, what's the best way to uh, get information or connect with you or connect with your company? Yeah, sure. So the best way would be, um, you know, if you just Google my name, my LinkedIn profile and website should come up. Um, and for Revelancer, um, just go to revelancer.com uh, or Google Revelancer and then you can get sorted there. Perfect. And that information will be in the uh, body of the uh, text. And so if you want to check out the description here on the episode, uh, you can go ahead and see where to uh, connect with Carl and Revelancer. So, Carl, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Uh, this is Marketing Management and Money with your host, Ryan Murray, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>